Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting January 22, 2016, we talk with Christopher Shea, the new top editor at WPJ, about the new winter 2016 issue, cover subject Latin America on life support, and specifically answers from across the region to the issue's big question. What are the challenges determining your country's position within Latin America? We'll also point out other top features in the new WPJ winter issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. This is a good day, because once again we're seeing what's possible with strong American diplomacy. As I said in my State of the Union address, ensuring the security of the United States and the safety of our people demands a smart, patient, and disciplined approach to the world. That includes our diplomacy with the Islamic Republic of Iran. And with that, President Obama announced some momentous news, namely that Iran, for decades a thorn in America's side, has so far complied with its obligations in a landmark nuclear agreement signed with the U.S. and five other world powers. So he's ordering the easing of sanctions against Tehran. The move opens the door to Iran's emergence into the global economy. The president also hailed the release of five Americans who were being held by Iran. Very welcome news indeed. Critics have long complained that easing of sanctions is merely rewarding Iran for supporting U.S. opponents like Syria's Bashar al-Assad and terror groups like Hezbollah, though after Obama's comments, the U.S. announced new and different sanctions to punish Iran for testing a ballistic missile. Obama has always seen reaching out to Iran as one way of dialing down Middle East tensions. Critics scoff, and whoever succeeds the president one year from now will have to decide whether to continue that policy or take a harder line. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. de Janeiro had great fireworks to celebrate the new year, but then there are fireworks on many days in Brazil these days. Narrowly re-elected President Dilma Rousseff is under pressure from impeachment proceedings moving from lower to upper house of the national legislature, suspended briefly by the country's Supreme Court, then permitted to continue. She nevertheless persists with her left-wing agenda in typically provocative fashion. As 2016 began, Rousseff overruled more than 50 amendments to budget guidelines passed by the legislature, including cuts in her hallmark social program and a ban on state financing for some major overseas projects to boost that sector of Brazil's flagging economy as well as the nation's international image. And Brazil is only one of many Latin American countries that now struggle for footing amid threatening circumstances, economic, political, and social, both at home and abroad. Accordingly, the cover subject of World Policy Journal's new Winter 2016 issue is Latin America on Life Support, 
The issue's big question feature is, what are the challenges determining your country's position within Latin America? And to review the answers from a panel of regional experts, we have new WPJ editor Christopher Shea. I spoke with him recently for this podcast. Welcome to World Policy on Air, boss. Thank you for having me. Let's start with you. It's your debut on our podcast, but you had an earlier role at World Policy Journal. Talk about that and what you did professionally before returning as top editor. Well, four years ago, I started off as managing editor of World Policy Journal. So I spent two years under the tutelage of my predecessor, David Andelman, and sort of got to know World Policy Journal, World Policy Journal's history and the Institute's history, and sort of absorbed a lot of the DNA and sort of learned what the publication stands for and has stood for in the past. Uh, So after two years of managing editor, I then moved to Al Jazeera America, where I was a news editor uh, on the website, doing covering breaking news uh, across across the world for Al Jazeera. And then back here as editor, I'm excited. I'm excited to be back. Any special plans or goals for the magazine, its website, and other operations that you can share with our listeners? Well, so first, I I want to talk about what I love about World Policy Journal and what I hope to keep going forward. So one thing that David did an excellent job at is sort of have this global perspective on on the world and, and on policy issues. And that's something that I want to keep going forward. So many of the international policy magazines, especially U.S.-based ones, take a very U.S.-first approach to policy. And I really hope to keep uh, that global perspective uh, on the news and, and on policy issues. What I want to do moving forward is sort of really inject a little bit of freshness and sort of we'll, we'll be doing some uh, design changes to the inside of the magazine. We'll hopefully sort of be grabbing onto a little bit more of a livelier, a little bit more of an, in, an insurgent uh, voice. Um, and that will hopefully be reflected also on the website um, and maybe even the uh, the guests on this podcast. Well, if it's in the magazine and on the website, there'll be guests on our show. Let's turn to Latin America and the new issues. Big question, starting where we began the program in Brazil. First, identify the expert from there on the panel. The expert on the panel from Brazil is a woman named Fernanda Canofre, and she writes regularly from Brazil uh, for Global Voices Online. She's actually contributed two previous times to World Policy Journal. Uh, the two previous winters. So this is her third contribution uh, to the magazine. We mentioned President Rousseff's commitment to projects outside the country to maintain an image of international leadership, but our expert says that can cause problems back home. She cites work in Cuba. So the, the, the first thing to understand about sort of Brazil's position in the region is that uh, Dilma Rousseff and her party are really struggling domestically. Uh, her approval ratings are currently hovering at about 10%. Uh, they were as low as 8%. I mean, those are approval, low, uh, approval ratings lower than the worst Adam Sandler movies, lower than um, U.S. Congress. So she's, she's really in a vulnerable position um, politically, um, especially following this Petrobras scandal in March 2014, where 
her party allegedly used Petrobras, the quasi-state oil company, as a slush fund. We're talking kickbacks, bribes, and at the same time, you had commodity prices uh, tanking, and that Brazil's economy is very much tied to uh, to the commodities industries. Um, so they're, they're in a very difficult place in, uh, financially. So at the same time, you have this scandal and these economic problems going on. Um, you have Dilma Rousseff um, helping to fund Cuba's Mariel Port, which is a billion-dollar port infrastructure project. Um, Brazil, as uh, Fernanda Canafre points out, still owes Mercosur, the uh, a regional bloc, $120 million. So, so you have this balancing that Brazil is trying to do, uh, this balancing of domestic and regional politics that's very difficult when the government is struggling so much domestically. Uh, Fernando Canafari writes that the alliances with other left-wing governments in the region are like stones in the pockets of a drowning person. Um, and as we head into 2016, Brazil appears to be um, headed for the for its deepest recession since 1901. So this is a sort of challenge that does not appear it's going to be overcome by Brazil anytime soon. Yeah, and spending money in Cuba uh, is uh, not seen as a, as real, a really important investment in uh, Brazil's economy at this particular point. Correct, correct. Uh, I think for someone like Rousseff, alliances with some of the uh, other leftist governments is important, and it's important for, for Rousseff and, and Brazil to to grow its role in the region, but it's, it's going to be difficult with... Um, given its financial situation and the lack of political capital that Rousseff and her, and her party has at the moment. Let's turn to Chile. Who was the expert on our panel from there? Uh, so the, from Chile, we had Lorena Orison Serrano, who is a professor at the University of Chile. What she focuses on is really looking into the, the legacies the state's foreign policy from its authoritarian period and sort of how that's affecting its current day policy choices. So she especially points to a pragmatism and the influence of economic elites. The, the main example she goes into um, as that shows the, the legacy of pragmatism and, and the influence of elites is um, Chile's maritime dispute with Peru. This is a dispute that lasted, that dates back to the 19th century. Peru disputed some 38,000 square kilometers of ocean. It was taken to the International Court of Justice. But during this dispute, uh, the Chilean government was able to split off the economic aspects of the dispute from the political aspects. So this, um, what what she calls a two-track approach, avoided the political tensions getting in the way of trade and investment. So you can see how there was a pragmatic reason for going forward with its dispute with Peru in this way by splitting the economic and political aspects, but also it's something that ultimately benefited um, uh, the business, the elite business community in Chile as well. She sees a kind of 19th century logic in Chile's relationship also with Bolivia, uh, despite what she calls a 21st century mandate to become more of a bridge in the region. Talk about both uh, sides of that equation. 
Uh, so correct. It's 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 ultimately coming from the. This all comes from context of the the 19th century War of the Pacific. So in in this, um, Bolivia ultimately lost access um, to the ocean, become became a landlocked country, and since then Bolivia has been fighting to uh, act, be able to access the ocean through an Atacama corridor. This is this is another dispute that that was taken to the International Court of Justice. Bolivia says that in bilateral talks in the 50s and 70s that a sovereign route to the Pacific was promised by Chile. Um, and so they're using this to say that Chile needs to sort of relinquish control of this, this area, this, this Atacama corridor. Um, and so this, this is, a, this is a, an, an ongoing dispute. Um, and this really sort of flies in the face of something that uh, Morena says that Chile needs to do, which is sort of um, strengthen its role as, as a bridge country. And what I think she means by that is, is a place um, to set up business or a place that's sort of well-connected, especially through trade with the rest of the world. And Chile has strong trading agreements and good ports. So it is sort of well is potentially well-placed to be this bridge country in the region, both um, within Latin America, but also um, from Latin America to uh, Asian Pacific countries. But one aspect, of, um, one aspect of being an important bridge country would be to make sure all its sort of legal ducts are in order and doesn't have these ongoing disputes, especially... Uh, maritime land disputes. So this, it really needs to sort of get over its hump with these disputes, with uh, with especially Bolivia. Mexico is too much of a bridge for its own good. Uh, arms and cash coming from the U.S., drugs and people heading out from the South, and associated criminality following in both directions. Who did we get to analyze that situation? Uh, so the person writing on, on Mexico in this section for us is Gabriela de la Paz Melendez, who is a uh, international studies professor at the Monterey Institute of Technology and Higher Education. Um, and 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 for her, the Mexico's position as a bridge company, uh, a bridge country rather, is both a positive and 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 a negative. So, so the the biggest challenge in uh, for Mexico is that, as she writes, arms and money flow unlawfully from north to south, and drugs and people flow unlawfully from south to north. Uh, and these uh, illegal flows are exacerbated by a weak judicial system and huge income disparities. And, and this is. Um, Mexico's massive challenge and, and has been for, for many years. But at the same time, it also has the sort of, it's sort of outsized role in the, the flows of, of trade has its advantages. And Mexico has some 81 embassies, 69 consulates, six, six missions. It's signed on to the TPP. Um, and with the depreciation and the peso, it's only going to help exporters. So on the one hand, there are all these challenges, especially to its institutions related to justice and security. But on the other hand, Mexico seems well-placed 
with, within global trade. We talked recently on this podcast about Venezuela's surprising election results and the growing opposition to the leaders and the legacy left by the late President Hugo Chavez. Who was our expert from there? And what's the report about the origins and prospects for that country's greatest challenges? So we had uh, Hernan Castillo, who is a professor uh, at Simon Boulevard University in Caracas. Um, and he really places the blame for Venezuela's problem solely on uh, Hugo Chavez and, uh, his, and his legacy. Um, and he has a long litany of problems that, that are facing uh, Venezuela drug trafficking, smuggling, illegal trade of weapons, radioactive materials and precious stones, terrorism, human trafficking, migration of refugees, environmental destruction, uh, violations of human rights, particularly freedom of expression, thought, and democratic political organization, and all these sort of uh, ongoing problems that he fears could spread elsewhere in the region, he places right at the feet of, um, of Hugo Chavez and... Uh, the government that came after him. And what's your feeling about the prospects given the, the surprising uh, results of the election? The, the challenges facing Venezuela at the moment uh, are significant. Uh, so it's, I, I think it remains to be seen how, how much of these challenges can be, uh, can be overcome. Uh, Venezuela, like Brazil, um, is... Uh, very reliant on commodities, in particular oil. So with the, the with the falling oil prices, it doesn't have the government coffers to spend its way out of some of these some of these issues. And at the same time, uh, there's there's a there's another piece in this issue about how these conditions are sort of really pushing out um, some of Venezuela's most educated, most talented individuals. There's a real brain drain and sort of lack of morale uh, in in Venezuela as a result of these things. So while while the mythos of Chavez might be weakening somewhat, uh, there are major challenges ahead. Weak political institutions are cited as the main factor affecting development of deeper and better relationships between Peru and its neighbors. Uh, who commented on those conditions for the Big Question panel? Uh, so we've got Enrique Mendizabal, who is the founder of On Think Tanks, which is a online publication focusing on uh, think tanks around the globe. Uh, and he's also a lecturer at the University of the Pacific in, in Peru. He did find a few pockets of excellence in public policy bodies. What are they? Uh, so he, he especially, he singled out the central bank and the, the ministry of finance as being particularly well-run and well-regarded in, in institutions. And yet he says uh, young policy experts whose initiatives are highly regarded also help undermine the country's politics. How can that be? It's, so this, this is an, in, an interesting sort of paradox that, that, that he, he highlights and, and says is underreported, is how these, these, these well-regarded individuals who, uh, who he, he indicates are doing uh, some good work are acting like temporary consultants rather than true civil servants. Uh, and the result is they, they're serving only as long as their ministers remain in fashion with the private sector and, uh, and the 
you know, at the whims of the international community somewhat. So these 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 technocrats are not building the sort of deep rooted uh, local sphere of politics. Um, rather, they're temporarily serving business and outsiders. So even if they're doing this good work, they're not contributing to strengthening the political roots of the country. There are two experts from Argentina on the panel, and both address transnational organized crime, especially narcotics and human trafficking, and the way it both causes and exploits the institutional and political weakness in so many Latin American countries these days. Who are those panelists, and what's your reaction to their analysis? Well, we had uh, Andres Fontana, who is a uh, professor of political science at the National University of La Matanza, and Mariana Terzi, an international relations professor at New York University in Buenos Aires. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that Terzi talks about, which, which I think is particularly insightful, is the way in which narco economies generate these, these enclaves that displace other productive endeavors and that ultimately chase out financial and human capital. Um, so the, the challenges of, of the narco state and drug trafficking go beyond the, the hot violence that one, one reads about, but it also is a lost opportunity for investments of human and financial capital. And one thing that both writers talk about is the way it degrades the state institutions that should be providing the role. It, it's not just filling in spaces that have been left abandoned. It's also actively pushing out and preventing uh, the state from being proactive. Christopher Shea, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Christopher Shea is the new editor of World Policy Journal. He reviewed answers in the new winter 2016 issue, cover line Latin America on life support, to the issue's big question. What are the challenges determining your country's position within Latin America? Also featured in the new WPJ Winter issue, you'll find articles on Latin America's evolving culture, the changing face of Cuba, black sites on the internet, and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. And listen next week when our podcast will delve more deeply into Latin America's evolving economies. And listen next week when our podcast will delve more deeply into Latin America's evolving economies. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>